grace sufficient, grace for me, grace for all who will believe. Father God, I pray that this morning we would learn more about your grace, but it wouldn't just hit our heads, it would sink down to our hearts, that it would change us, and that it would change the way we live. I pray, Father, for me, uh, that you would um, use my weak words and transform them and make them useful for everyone who's listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll open with an apology. It's not often that I listen to Women's Hour on Radio 4. Um, but every now and then, it's there, it's on the background, it's in the car, on the radio, and uh, my ears sort of prick up to what's, um, what's being said. And not long ago, there was an eminent psychologist called Dorothy Rowe who was on the show. And she was uh, making observations about how religion affects society. She argued that religious people construct a fantasy about how they are superior to those who who don't share their views. Uh, They point the finger at others and say, you're the problem, not me. Religion, she therefore argues, is therefore divisive. It, It breaks us all into tribes. It divides society. I don't know, maybe uh, you're here this morning uh, looking in on on spiritual things, and maybe this has been your experience of Christianity. Arrogant, bigoted, self-righteous, divisive, hypocritical. And maybe you're wondering, why on earth Hannah and I want to raise Caleb in this faith? Well, my aim for the next 20 minutes or so is to demonstrate that the Christianity many of us might have experienced is not the Christianity of the Bible. In front of you is a very short letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man called Titus. And it might surprise you that Paul's expectations for Christians are the complete opposite of Dorothy Rowe's experience of religion. Follow with me in your Bibles. Look down at verse 1, if you would, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. It's page 1199, if you shut your Bibles. Verse 1. Paul writes this, remind the people, that's Christians, followers of Jesus, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all people. Notice here that instead of being the cause of division and tribalism in society, Christians are to be peaceable and considerate. Notice that instead of being arrogant, proud, holier than thou, Christians are to show perfect humility towards all people. The big question for us this morning is this. What will stop Christians falling into those patterns that Dorothy Rowe recognized? What stops Christians from thinking they're better than everyone else? Well, Paul gives us a couple of reasons. They're they're there on your handout if you're you're following along. The first is this. We, too, have a very unflattering past. Look down again with me at verse 3 in your Bibles. Verse 3. At one time, we, too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. 
It's a common accusation which is levelled at uh, wealthy celebrities that they've uh, lost touch with their humble origins. I think it was uh, Jennifer Lopez who sung, uh, Don't be fooled by the rocks that I've got. I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the block. You're not fooling anyone, Jenny. But, but just in case uh, we followers of Jesus attempted to fall into that trap, Paul holds up, if you like, a very unflattering old photograph of us. He's there in the frame himself. Look there at verse 3. He writes, At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient. In the Bible, the fool isn't so much a comic character as so much a tragic one. The fool is someone who who thinks they can live life uh, as though God doesn't really exist. A a bit like that, that spoilt child on their birthday. The fool is happy to take in all the gifts like life, friends, family, home, holidays, all the gifts, loves the gifts, but doesn't show any interest in the giver. In effect, the fool says, I'm content, content to live my life, my way, without you. I think the irony here is that the fool might have the appearance of freedom, But there in verse 3, the fool falls victim to being deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Hannah and I love watching those human planet documentaries. They're a bit like planet Earth, but instead of animals, you get people. And they're narrated by by John Hurt. And there was one particular episode which was following the Inuit people uh, living in the Arctic Circle. And you're not allowed to call them Eskimos anymore, so they're the Inuit people. And uh, it tells them about how they uh, catch wolves. What they do is they they take a a razor-sharp knife and then dip it in seal's blood and then wedge it into the snow so that the blade is pointing upwards. And then the hunters just walk away. And overnight, wolves are are attracted to the scent of the seal's blood and and they'll begin to lick the knife, enjoying the, the taste of the seal's blood. This is a gruesome illustration, by the way. Just, just heads up. <laughs> Go like this. Uh, eventually, the, uh, the wolf gets slightly frustrated with the, sort of the limited payout, so it starts to lick harder and harder at this razor-sharp blade. Eventually, the wolf is delighted because all this blood is suddenly starting to flow, but he doesn't realize what he's doing. As he gets weaker and weaker with the loss of blood, so his appetite gets stronger and stronger, and when the hunters return the next morning, they find one dead wolf it's a gruesome story but Paul is making a very similar point here in verse 3 our appetites can be fatal what we do we we take these good gifts from God and then we we worship them as though they are God we expect these things to offer us life, uh, satisfaction and freedom whether it's our wealth or, or, or our jobs or our passions Ironically, these things enslave us. They entrap us. The payout is limited, but being numbed to the dangers and craving for more, we just keep pursuing them until spiritual death. Well, that's the fool's response to God. But notice, as Paul goes on in verse 3, how that relationship with God, how it affects, therefore, our relationship with others. Uh, Look at verse 3 again, the second half. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. 
Now, when I first read that, I thought, oh, come on, steady on, Paul. That sounds a bit strong. I'm not sure that really describes me in uh, my natural state. Maybe that's what you're thinking as you read that. The more I've been thinking about this, the more I think, actually, no, it perfectly describes me in my natural state. You might have heard of the, the philosopher C.S. Lewis. He wrote the, the Narnia books. Uh, but but he, he argued that next to our fear of death, the single biggest drive and motivation in human life is the desire for approval, for respect, for status. We want to climb, don't we, in people's estimations of us. and We want to be the most loved, the most successful, the, the most approved of. So what do we do? Well, it's out of that sort of insecurity that we push others down. Malice. It's out of that insecurity we, we desire the position others are in. Envy. It's, and the inevitable result of malice and envy is hating and being hated. I mean, we see this in our schools. We see this in our workplaces. Sadly, we even sometimes see this in our families. I came across um, an interview recently with Jess Phillips. She's the, the Labour MP for Birmingham. And she was uh, critiquing the current mindset of the Labour Party. She said this, Under Miliband, and now under Corbyn, Labour has behaved like a self-righteous teenager who's just become a vegetarian. We're not better than people. We are people. And until we stop lecturing everyone about how good you've got to be, people will just be turned off the Labour Party. Well, I wonder how many people have been turned off investigating the Christian faith because they somehow got the impression that we think we're better than them. We're not. We're not. Christians have no reason to be self-righteous. In fact, we should show true humility to all people because we too have a very unflattering past. But here's the second reason why Christians should show true humility to all people. And that's because we've received an undeserved rescue. I appreciate verse 3 is a bit depressing, isn't it? So after verse 3, there's a wonderful gear shift. And, and Paul now turns to explain how our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has acted to save people like us. Look down with me at verse 4. Verse 4. I love this word, but. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his great mercy. Paul begins by describing here God the Father who saves. Now many people imagine, don't they, in their heads, that God the Father is a bit like a, a, an austere sort of Victorian patriarch. Distant, disinterested, massive beard, cane in hand, frown on forehead. We imagine often that's what God is like. The picture here couldn't be any different from that, could it? Here is, he is described as so kind, so loving, so merciful that he desires to save the very people who have ignored him and rejected him. We haters are the objects of his love. I notice that here in verse 4 that salvation is not given in exchange for the good things we might do. No, it's completely free, it's a gift. And this really is what distinguishes Christianity from every religion. 
Max Muller was one of the greatest English, ancient language experts of the last century. He lectured at Oxford for many years. And he once said this to a, to a, to a lecture hall full of his peers. For 40 years at the University of Oxford, I've carried out my duties as the professor of Sanskrit. I've devoted as much time to the study of the holy books of the East as any other human being in the world. And I venture to tell this gathering what I've found to be the basic note, the single chord that runs through all of these holy books, be it the, the Veda of the Brahmins, the Quran of the Muslims, the Sendavestra of the Parsis. The one basic note or chord that runs through all of them is salvation by works. They each teach that salvation must be bought and that your own works and merits must be the purchasing price. He then held up a Bible. Our own Bible, he said, our own sacred book from the East is from start to finish a protest against that doctrine. I think Max Miller understood what Paul's saying here in verse 4. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his great mercy. Christianity is not a religion. It's a rescue. So when I was listening to Dorothy Rowe on the radio about the effects of religion on society, the superiority complexes, the finger-pointing, the, the tribalism, I had to agree with her. Religion does do those things, doesn't it? But biblical Christianity will never do those things. Imagine for a moment that, that God did save us on uh, the basis of what we do. Well, not only would Christians just be intolerably arrogant people, intolerably self-righteous, would also be chronically insecure, wondering if we've ever done enough to please God. Well, praise God that he has rescued us simply on the basis of his undeserved mercy, which means we can enjoy complete security in our salvation. And we have no reason to boast, no reason to, to point fingers at others. Well, the Father saves but how does he do that? Well, Paul goes on to tell us about the Spirit who washes. Look down with me, uh, halfway through verse 5. He says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. God the Spirit's role here is described a bit like a bath. Now, Caleb, you met earlier, he loves bath time. He's, he's got this little seat, which we put him in, and he's there in the bath with Chloe. It's much easier to bath your kids together, isn't it? And uh, he's got this little seat, and Chloe gets really annoyed because he starts kicking his legs and, and, and get Chloe very wet, and, and I get very wet, and he, he supposedly gets clean. But it's not long after we pull him out of the bath that he needs another bath again because he vomits on himself or he poos himself or he does something disgusting, and then we need to bath him again. Well, the washing here that the Spirit gives never needs to be repeated. It's a one-off event which has continual effects. So, so the moment that someone puts their trust in Jesus, the Spirit comes and he washes them of all their guilt, all their sin, all their shame. He makes us clean before the Father. 
But more than that, he, he then continues to renew us, to, to, to make us more and more like him. And the baptism we witnessed earlier, if you're here at the start of the service, it's a picture of, of this washing which we read about here. It anticipates that the Spirit's work in Caleb. So as we've we prayed already, we pray that he will one day come to confirm for himself these promises we've made on his behalf. Declare for himself salvation by the Father, having been washed by the Spirit. But how? How does the Spirit do this? Well, the answer is through the Son who justifies. Now, let's pick it up again, the second half of verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Justified isn't a term we use often, is it? It's a, it's a legal term. It's the sort of thing you might hear at a law court. It kind of means that, that a justified person is someone who, who has been declared innocent of all charges. And the Christian has been declared innocent of all charges. The story is told of a, a rather eccentric Englishman who went on holiday in the 1950s to the continent. And he is one of these English chaps who had slightly more money than sense, really. So he, he, to, to, he decided to ship his pride and joy along with him. It was a, a Rolls Royce, the, the, the crown jewels of the motoring world. So there he was, he was bombing along the German autobahns, not enjoying the lack of speed limits there, when all of a sudden it breaks down, the car breaks down, panic-stricken. What does he do? Well, he calls up um, Rolls Royce back in Blighty and says, hello, um, my, my car's broken down, what can you do for me? And amazingly, Rolls-Royce from the 1950s, I thought they do this today, they flew over a mechanic, first class, to fix his car straight away. The man was amazed at this just extraordinary service. And when he got back from holiday, he, he wrote to the company asking them, how, how much is this going to cost me? He got this reply back. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls-Royce. For the person who trusts in Jesus, there is no record anywhere that you have ever done anything wrong. You have been justified by grace, free of charge. And this is why the Son of God entered our world. As the heir and the inheritor of all of creation, he, he lived the most attractive and blameless life. I encourage you to open a gospel later on, read about him. And yet, what did he do with that amazing, blessed life? Well, he decided to go to the cross. And there he bore upon himself the punishment that we deserve for rejecting our Creator. He took our guilty verdict. And in exchange, we received his innocent verdict. We became heirs with him of eternal life. We have a very unflattering past, and we have an undeserved rescue. But finally, and very, very briefly, this is a trustworthy message. Look down with me at the final verse in verse 8. Paul writes this. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you, Titus, to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, these things are excellent 
and profitable for everyone. I appreciate that here this morning we'll be at different points in our journey of investigating Christian things. But, but whoever we are here today, Paul commends to us this message of salvation. It is worthy of our trust. It is excellent and profitable for everyone here. So maybe you're here and, and you've already put your trust in Jesus. So you've already entrusted yourself to this triune God that we've heard about. My prayer for you is this, that as, as you grow in your understanding and appreciation of God's kindness and grace shown to you, having, having enjoyed that security more and more, that you would then extend that same grace to others. That you would devote yourself to doing what is good. Friends, we've got to avoid the, uh, be careful to avoid the charges uh, leveled, to, uh, leveled at religion by people like Dorothy Rowe. Because even as our culture swings far away, more violently away against Christian views, we've got to remember we're not better. We are not wiser. We're not part of some exclusive club. We are merely beggars, pointing other beggars to food. So if as followers of Jesus we have understood this message of grace, then we will be the best citizens we will be the kindest neighbours. We will be the most devoted friends. But maybe you're here today and you're still investigating Christian things. You've got big questions. Well, I hope you see, most of all, that Christianity is not a religion. It is a rescue. It's a free gift. But like most gifts, it's got to be opened. Salvation, cleansing, an innocent verdict. It's all on the table, if you like. But will you accept them? For yourself. Well, in a moment's time, I'm going to pray a prayer where, you, where you, can, you can ask God to do that for yourself. You can claim that, all those blessings, all those promises, not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. I'll pray a prayer in a moment. It might be you want to echo that along with me in your heart. Um, but if you're not quite ready there, I do commend you this Life Explored course we heard about earlier, starting up in November. Maybe you've got huge questions. And uh, I'd love it if you could join us there. And uh, we can thrash through them together. One eye closed together uh, in prayer. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Father God, we are sorry for the way in which by nature we reject you. We are proud and arrogant, thinking we're better than others. Thank you, Lord, for humbling us. Thank you, Lord, for showing us what we're really like by nature. Thank you for your work of salvation, God. Thank you so much for extending grace and kindness to us, even though we don't deserve it. Help us to trust in Jesus. And thank you that we can stand before you as justified in your sight because of his kindness and mercy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.